0: Section six of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lawrence Trask. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Chapter five Examples of Thrift. Part one Examples demonstrate the possibility of success. Cotton the force of his own merit makes his way shakespeare reader attend whether thy soul soars fancy's flight beyond the pole or darkling grubs this earthly hole in low pursuit no prudent cautious self-control is wisdom's root burns in the family as in the state the best source of wealth is economy cicero right action is the result of right faith but a true and right faith cannot be sustained deepened extended save in a course of right action thrift is the spirit of order applied to domestic management and organization its object is to manage frugally the resources of the family to prevent waste and to avoid useless expenditure. Thrift is under the influence of reason and forethought, and never works by chance or by fits. It endeavors to make the most and the best of everything. It does not save money for saving's sake. It makes cheerful sacrifices for the present benefit of others, or it submits to voluntary privation for some future good. Mrs. Inchbald, Author of the simple story was by dint of thrift able to set apart the half of her small income for the benefit of her infirm sister There was thus about two pounds a week for the maintenance of each Many times she says during the winter when I was crying with cold have I said to myself Thank God my dear sister need not leave her chamber. She will find her fire ready for her each morning for she is now far less able than I am to endure privation. Mrs Inchbald's family were, for the most part, very poor, and she felt it right to support them during their numerous afflictions. There is one thing that may be said of benevolence, that it has never ruined anyone, though selfishness and dissipation have ruined thousands the words waste not want not carved in stone over sir walter scott's kitchen fireplace at Abbotsford, expresses in a few words the secret of order in the midst of abundance order is most useful in the management of everything of a household of a business of a manufactory of an army its maxim is a place for everything and everything in its place Order is wealth for whoever properly regulates the use of his income almost doubles his resources disorderly persons are rarely rich and orderly persons are rarely poor order is the best manager of time for unless work is properly arranged time is lost and once lost it is gone forever order illustrates many important subjects thus obedience to the moral and natural law is order respect for ourselves and our neighbors is order regard for the rights and obligations of all is order virtue is order the world began with order chaos prevailed before the establishment of order thrift is the spirit of order in human life it is the prime agent in private economy it preserves the happiness of many a household and as it is usually woman who regulates the order of the household it is mainly upon her that the well-doing of society depends it is therefore all the more necessary that she should early be educated in the habit and the virtue of orderliness the peer the merchant the clerk the artisan and the laborer are all of the same nature born with the same propensities and subject to similar influences they are it is true born in different positions but it rests with themselves whether they shall live their lives nobly or vilely they may not have their choice of riches or poverty but they have their choice of being good or evil of being worthy or worthless people of the highest position in point of culture and education have often as great privations to endure as the average of working people they have often to make their incomes go much further they have to keep up a social standing they have to dress better and live sufficiently well for the purpose of health though their income may be less than that of colliers and iron workers they are under the moral necessity of educating their sons and bringing them up as gentlemen so that they may take their fair share of the world's work thus the tenth earl of buchan brought up a numerous family of children one of whom afterwards rose to be lord chancellor of england upon an income not exceeding two hundred a year it is not the amount of income so much as the good use of it that marks the true man and viewed in this light good sense good taste and sound mental culture are among the best of all economists the late dr iten said that his father brought up a still larger family on only half the income of the earl of buchan the following dedication prefixed to his work on clerical economics is worthy of being remembered this work is respectfully dedicated to a father now in the eighty-third year of his age who, on an income which never exceeded a hundred pounds yearly, educated, out of a family of twelve children, four sons to liberal professions, and who has often sent his last shilling to each of them, in their turn, when they were at college. The author might even cite his own case as an illustration of the advantages of thrift. His mother was left a widow when her youngest child, the youngest of eleven, Was only three weeks old notwithstanding a considerable debt on account of suretyship which was paid she bravely met the difficulties of her position and perseveringly overcame them though her income was less than that of many highly paid working men she educated her children well and brought them up religiously and virtuously she put her sons in the way of doing well and if they have not done so it was through no fault of hers hume the historian was a man of good family but being a younger brother his means were very small his father died while he was an infant he was brought up by his mother who devoted herself entirely to the rearing and educating of her children at twenty-three young hume went to france to prosecute his studies there says he in his autobiography i laid down that plan of life which i have steadily and successfully pursued i resolved to make a very rigid frugality supply my deficiency of fortune to maintain unimpaired my independency and to regard every object as contemptible except the improvement of my talents in literature the first book he published was a complete failure but he went on again composed and published another book which was a success but he made no money by it he became secretary to the military embassy at vienna and turin and at thirty-six he thought himself rich these are his own words my appointments with my frugality had made me reach a fortune which i called independent though most of my friends were inclined to smile when i said so in short i was now master of near a thousand pounds everyone knows that a thousand pounds at five per cent means fifty pounds a year and hume considered himself independent with that income his friend adam smith said of him even in the lowest state of his fortune his great and necessary frugality never hindered him from exercising upon proper occasion acts both of charity and generosity it was a frugality founded not on avarice but upon the love of independency but one of the most remarkable illustrations of thrift is to be found in the history of the Reverend Robert Walker the wonderful Robert Walker as he is still called in the district of Cumberland where he resided he was curate of Leithway during the greater part of the last century the income of the curacy at the time of his appointment 1735 was only five pounds a year his wife brought him a fortune of forty pounds is it possible that he could contrive to live upon his five pounds a year the interest of his wife's fortune and the result of his labors as a clergyman yes he contrived to do all this and he not only lived well though plainly but he saved money which he left for the benefit of his family he accomplished all this by means of industry frugality and temperance first about his industry. He thoroughly did the work connected with his curacy. The Sabbath was in all respects regarded by him as a holy day. After morning and evening service, he devoted the evening to reading the scriptures and family prayer. On weekdays, he taught the children of the parish, charging nothing for the education, but only taking so much as the people chose to give him the parish church was his school and while the children were repeating their lessons by his side he was like shenstone's schoolmistress engaged in spinning wool he had the right of pasturage upon the mountains for a few sheep and a couple of cows which required his attendance with this pastoral occupation he joined the labors of husbandry for he rented two or three acres of land in addition to his own acre of glebe, and he also possessed a garden, the whole of which was tilled by his own hand. The fuel of the house consisted of peat, procured by his labor from the neighboring mosses. He also assisted his parishioners in haymaking and shearing their flocks, in which latter art he was eminently dexterous in return the neighbours would present him with a haycock or a fleece as a general acknowledgment of his services after officiating as curate of leithwaite for about twenty years the annual value of the living was increased to seventeen pounds ten shillings his character being already well known and highly appreciated the bishop of carlisle offered mr walker the appointment of the adjoining curacy of Ulfa, but he conscientiously refused it on the ground that the annexation would be apt to cause a general discontent among the inhabitants of both places, by either thinking themselves slighted, being only served alternately, or neglected in the duty, or attributing it to covetousness in me, all which occasions of murmuring I would willingly avoid. Yet at this time Mr. Walker had a family of eight children— he afterwards maintained one of his sons at Trinity College, Dublin, until he was ready for taking holy orders. The parish pastor was, of course, a most economical man, yet no act of his life savored in the least degree of meanness or avarice. On the other hand, his conduct throughout life displayed the greatest disinterestedness and generosity. He knew very little of luxuries, and he cared less tea was only in his house for visitors the family used milk which was indeed far better excepting milk the only other drink used in the house was water clear water drawn from the mountain spring the clothing of the family was comely and decent but it was all home-made it was simple like their diet occasionally one of the mountain sheep was killed for purposes of food and towards the end of the year a cow was killed and salted down for provision during winter the hide was tanned and the leather furnished shoes for the family by these and other means this venerable clergyman reared his numerous family not only preserving them as he so affectingly says from wanting the necessaries of life but affording them an unstinted education and the means of raising themselves in society Footnote one: The best account of Mister Walker is to be found in the appendix to the poems of Wordsworth. The poet greatly appreciated the clergyman's character and noticed him in his excursion, as well as in the notes to the sonnets entitled "The River Duddon." And of footnote one: Many men, in order to advance themselves in the world and to raise themselves in society, have scorned delights and lived laborious days. They have lived humbly and frugally in order to accomplish greater things. They have supported themselves by their hand labor, until they could support themselves by their head labor. Some may allege that this is not justifiable, that it is a sin against the proletariat to attempt to rise in the world, that once a cobbler, always a cobbler. But until a better system has been established, the self-application of individuals is the only method by which science and knowledge can be conquered, and the world permanently advanced. Goeth says it is perfectly indifferent within what circle an honest man acts, provided he do but know how to understand and completely fill out that circle and again an honest and vigorous will could make itself a path and employ its activity to advantage under every form of society what is the best government he asks that which teaches us to govern ourselves all that we need in his opinion is individual liberty and self-culture let every one he says only do right in his place without troubling himself about the turmoil of the world At all events, it is not by socialism but by individualism that anything has been done towards the achievement of knowledge and the advancement of society. It is the will and determination of individual men that impels the world forward in art, in science, and in all the means and methods of civilization. Individual men are willing to deny themselves, but associated communities will not. The masses are too selfish and fear that advantage will be taken of any sacrifices which they may be called upon to make hence it is amongst the noble band of resolute spirits that we look for those who raise and elevate the world as well as themselves the recollection of what they have done acts as a stimulus to others it braces the mind of man reanimates his will and encourages him to further exertions when lord elcho addressed the east lothian colliers he named several men who had raised themselves from the coal pit and first of all he referred to mr macdonald member for stafford the beginning of my acquaintance with mr macdonald he says was when i was told that a miner wanted to see me in the lobby of the house of commons i went out and saw mr macdonald who gave me a petition from this district which he asked me to present i entered into conversation with him and was much struck by his intelligence he told me that he had begun life as a boy in the pit in lanarkshire and that the money he saved as a youth in the summer he spent at glasgow university in the winter and that is where he got whatever book learning or power of writing he possesses i say that is an instance that does honour to the miners of scotland another instance was that of dr hogg who began as a pitman in this country worked in the morning attended school in the afternoon then went to the university for four years and to the theological hall for five years and afterwards in the consequence of his health failing he went abroad and is now engaged as a missionary in upper egypt or take the case of mr now sir george Elliot, member for north durham who has spoken up for the miners all the better, for having had practical knowledge of their work. He began as a miner in the pit, and he worked his way up till he has in his employment many thousand men. He has risen to his great wealth and station from the humblest position, as every man who now hears me is capable of doing, to a greater or less degree, if he will only be thrifty and industrious." Lord Elko might also have mentioned dr. Hutton the geologist a man of much higher order of genius who was the son of a coal viewer Buick the wood engraver is also said to have been the son of a coal miner Dr. Campbell was the son of a lonehead collier He was the forerunner of Moffat and Livingston in their missionary journeys among the Beshuanas in South Africa Alan Ramsay, the poet was also the son of a miner. George Stevenson worked his way from the pit head to the highest position as an engineer. George began his life with industry, and when he had saved a little money, he spent it in getting a little learning. What a happy man he was when his wages were increased to twelve shillings a week. He declared upon that occasion that he was made a man for life, he was not only enabled to maintain himself upon his earnings but to help his poor parents and to pay for his own education when his skill had increased and his wages were advanced to a pound a week he immediately began like a thoughtful intelligent workman to lay by his surplus money and when he had saved his first guinea he proudly declared to one of his colleagues that he was now a rich man and he was right for the man who after satisfying his wants has something to spare is no longer poor It is certain that from that day Stevenson never looked back His advance as a self improving man was as steady as the light of sunrise a person of large experience has indeed stated that he never knew amongst working people a single instance of a man having out of his small earnings laid by a pound who had in the end become a pauper when Stevenson proposed to erect his first locomotive He had not sufficient means to defray its cost But in the course of his life as a workman he had established a character He was trusted he was faithful He was a man who could be depended on Accordingly, when the Earl of Havensworth was informed of Stevenson's desire to erect a locomotive, he at once furnished him with the means for enabling him to carry his wishes into effect. Watt, also, in inventing the condensing steam engine, maintained himself by making and selling mathematical instruments. He made flutes, organs, compasses, anything that would maintain him until he had completed his invention at the same time he was perfecting his own education learning french german mathematics and the principles of natural philosophy this lasted for many years and by the time that watt had developed his steam engine and discovered matthew bolton he had by his own efforts become an accomplished and scientific man these great workers did not feel ashamed of laboring with their hands for a living but they also felt within themselves the power of doing headwork as well as hand-work and while thus laboring with their hands they went on with their inventions the perfecting of which has proved of so much advantage to the world hugh miller furnished in his own life an excellent instance of that practical common sense in the business of life which he so strongly recommended to others when he began to write poetry and felt within him the growing powers of a literary man he diligently continued his labour as a stone-cutter horace walpole has said that queen caroline's patronage of stephen duck the thresher poet ruined twenty men who all turned poets it was not so with the early success of hugh miller there is no more fatal error he says into which a working man of a literary turn can fall than the mistake of deeming himself too good for his humble employments and yet it is a mistake as common as it is fatal i had already seen several poor wrecked mechanics who believing themselves to be poets and regarding the manual occupation by which they could alone live in independence as beneath them and become in consequence little better than mendicants too good to work for their bread but not too good virtually to beg it and looking upon them as beacons of warning i determined that with god's help i should give their error a wide offing and never associate the idea of meanness with an honest calling or deem myself too good to be independent at the same time a man who feels that he has some good work in him which study and labor might yet bring out is fully justified in denying himself and in applying his energies to the culture of his intellect and it is astonishing how much carefulness thrift the reading of books and diligent application will help such men onward the author in his boyhood knew three men who worked in an agricultural implement makers shop they worked in wood and iron and made carts plows harrows drilling machines and such-like articles Somehow or other the idea got into their heads that they might be able to do something better than making carts and harrows They did not despise the lot of hand labor, but they desired to use it as a step towards something better Their wages at that time could not have exceeded from 18 to 20 shillings a week two of the young men who worked at the same bench contrived to save enough money to enable them to attend college during the winter At the end of each session they went back to their hand labor and earned enough wages during the summer to enable them to return to their classes during the winter the third did not adopt this course he joined a mechanics institute which had just been started in the town in which he lived by attending the lectures and reading the books in the library he acquired some knowledge of chemistry of the principles of mechanics and of natural philosophy he applied himself closely and studied hard in his evening hours and became an accomplished man it is not necessary to trace their history but what they eventually arrived at may be mentioned of the first two one became the teacher and proprietor of a large public school the other became a well-known dissenting minister while the third working his way strenuously and bravely became the principal engineer and manager of the largest steamship company in the world. Although mechanics institutes are old institutions, they have scarcely been supported by working men. The public house is more attractive and more frequented, and yet mechanics institutes, even though they are scarcely known south of Yorkshire and Lancashire, have been the means of doing a great deal of good. By placing sound mechanical knowledge within the reach of even the few persons who have been disposed to take advantage of them, they have elevated many persons into positions of great social influence. We have heard a distinguished man say publicly that a mechanics institution had made him, that but for the access which it had afforded him to knowledge of all kinds, he would have occupied a very different position in short the mechanics institution had elevated him from the position of a licensed victualler to that of an engineer end of section six read by lawrence trask mount vernon ohio